I think what we're starting to see is a bit of an evolution and there's kind of two camps. So the one camp is build a moat and keep everyone away out of your fortress. And the other camp uh, is you build bridges uh, across the water with the uh, tech companies and say, we want to work with you. Let's see if we can do something together and create something special. And I kind of think that is a more successful long-term strategy. Building bridges is better than trying to hold a moat. Uh, history has shown us that, that moats are eventually overcome and the output is not good. I cannot think of one example where the moat has really worked long-term. Welcome to season two of From the Blockchain, where we speak to today's most innovative entrepreneurs and thought leaders to impact the true potential of smart contract technology, Web3, and the digital frontier. I'm your host, Ashley Smith from Fame Lady Squad, and I'm thrilled to have you join today's top-tier community of forward-thinking trailblazers. We're here to foster a culture of idea sharing, creativity, and innovation that transcends industries, revolutionizes business, and drives meaningful conversation. If you're ready to forge a path to becoming a thought leader in your industry or organization, think of this podcast as your compass. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and be part of our amazing community. Oh, and please note that this podcast is for informational entertainment purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Alrighty, everybody, enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to From the Blockchain. I am very excited about today's show as we have a very special guest, someone that I have gotten to know personally over the last several years, uh, but who has been very involved in transformational change in organizations, looking at industry from macro level, understanding kind of like how things can go from one way of doing business to another way of doing business. I'm talking about Jeff King. I know him through the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Uh, Jeff was named CEO of the Real Estate Board, uh, which I will refer to uh, as REBGV if we talk about it directly moving forward. He was named CEO of REBGV in 2021. This is a member-based professional association of 15,000 realtors, the second largest of its kind in Canada. I should say I am a member and I served on the board for about 10 years before before Jeff took on the role. Prior to his appointment, Jeff served as the Chief Operating and Corporate Development Officer for SOCAN, which is the Society of Composers, Authors, and Music Publishers of Canada, a Canadian performance rights organization that represents more than 185,000 music creators. It licenses music works and collects and distributes royalties within the country and internationally. Between 2019 and 2021, in addition to his SOCAN duties, he also served as interim CEO of Datacluff, a back office service provider to music rights organizations, CEO of rights administrator Audium in New York, and content provider MediaNet from Seattle, as well as chair of the board of directors at DDX, a global standards setting organization focused on creating digital value chain standards for the music industry. In his time in the music industry, he was named COO of the Year by m Today in 2019, 2020, and 2021. And in 2023, he was named on the Most Influential Leaders in Real Estate by Tycoon Magazine and one of the Top 20 Most Dynamic CEOs in Canada by CEO Magazine. He holds a BA Honors from Wilfrid Laurier University and his expertise in strategy, innovation, licensing, distribution, technology, and corporate planning has made him a sought-after speaker at conferences around the world. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Ashley. I'm uh, excited to be on the show. Hey, it, it means a lot. I appreciate you you coming here. I think there's a lot we can talk about. Um, folks who listen to the show know I have a real estate background. Um, I do definitely want to talk about the industry and your perspective, but I also want to give a heads up to folks listening. We're not just going to be talking about real estate today. We're going to be talking about industry shifts, macro shifts, um, and maybe before we dive in, um, yeah. we can get a little bit more into your story, your background, um, because I do think that your experience in seeing some of these happen in real time and some of the mm. parallels to what we might be facing over the next few years um, is very informative. So Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you came from before um, getting into the real estate space? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I started in a uh, small town in Southern Ontario mm -hmm. and, uh, and then fast forward, uh, I, I was in the financial services space for uh, a number of years. I then decided to, uh, to make a change in my career and ended up at, uh, at SOCAN, as you mentioned. And I joined SOCAN in the early 2000s. And SOCAN is a uh, music rights licensing uh, body. 
the uh, the largest music in, uh, company in Canada, with uh, 185,000 Canadian uh, members and about 4.5 million international affiliates. So SoCan represents the world's repertoire in Canada. And when I arrived there uh, about 20 years ago, uh, the uh, uh, the industry had not changed a lot in decades. The, the basis of concerts and and film licensing and, uh, and television hadn't really changed much since the 50s and 60s. Uh, but it was clear that changes were coming. You know, the internet was in place. It was sort of the web 1.0 stage. And uh, the, the early thoughts around uh, the prospect of streaming television shows and music was starting to appear. There was no Netflix, not in the way that we think of it today. There was no YouTube. There was no Spotify. But the concept was out there. And when I arrived at SoCan, they were doing about 6 million transactions a year. Uh, by the time I left in the middle of 2021, uh, the organization was doing 300 million a day. And that's largely due to the explosion of online digital consumption. And another feature sort of happened along with that, which is part of really on the recorded music side, is around the acquisition of music. So you used to have to, I love this one song, you had to buy the whole album, right? And it drove people crazy for years. Uh, eventually, that started to shift rapidly in the 2000s and really had it went on its head in 2007 with the introduction of the iPhone. And new licensing models began to emerge. Uh, the uh, the early warning signs were things like Kazaa and LimeWire and Napster and BitTorrent were, were showing up. And they they had a role, but eventually got superseded by more traditional business-type arrangements and, and the rest. And some companies thrived in the new era, this new digital era. Uh, SoCan was one of them, but others did as well. A number of the more forward-thinking music labels and publishers have done well. Some of the other performing rights organizations have done well. But a lot were, have disappeared. You know, and you know, when was the last time you heard about Columbia House? Things like that. And so when I uh, was uh, speaking with the uh, uh, REBGV board about coming here, I started to see a lot of parallels. And right now we're kind of in the Web 2.0 world where Web 3.0 is kind of creeping in. So uh, in Web 2.0, there's transactional stuff that can happen, uh, but it, it's still mostly read and write and some one-to-one -one type dissemination. Uh, 3.0 is much more broad-based and uh, much uh, uh, more far-reaching. And it obviously includes things like blockchain and all those other different dimensions. But when I was speaking with the uh, uh, the uh, RebGV board, the REBGV board, uh, it was clear that the industry was not unlike what the music industry was 20 years earlier and was thinking along the lines of, oh, nothing's happened in 100 years. There's been lots of doomsayers. They've come and gone. Nothing's ever changed. But things do change, you know, and it is kind of like the old philosopher's quote, like nothing ever changes till all of a sudden everything changes all of a sudden. And I feel that we're starting to see that now in real estate and the parallels are shockingly similar. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to have the same outcome. It could end up being a much different way of how we end up resulting in it. But the one thing I've kind of learned through all this, and this goes for almost every industry, uh, the consumer is undefeated. And I recently uh, co-wrote an article with uh, Trevor Coote, who's the CEO of the BCREA, uh, on that very topic and about how you know the consumers are looking to either pull out uh, intermediaries, be they travel agents or uh, stockbrokers or uh, insurance brokers or what have you, um, and I've been relentless on it. And currently, in the, in the new world, they have access to data at levels that was unheard of 20 years ago. And that includes in real estate, uh, but it also includes in art or in car auctions, you name it. I think we're really seeing the rise of the strength of the consumer and how this will interact and how these things will pull together. And then when you add in another dimension and being the, uh, the strength of the uh, 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 the big tech companies, particularly the device-focused uh, ones. Um, uh, Apple, in, uh, in particular, has developed a, a really impressive ecosystem. And it seems to be an inevitable march uh, towards where a lot of this stuff is going to go. And then you read with some of the interests with some of the things that Google and Amazon and Microsoft are doing in these spaces. And I think 2030 is going to look a lot different than 2020 did. And so I think forward-thinking leaders, uh, and including yourself, are realizing this and uh, are, are leaning in to be not just early adopters, but harbingers and leaders in this new world order that's starting to emerge. I do wonder a bit from um, an industry perspective, and not solely the real estate industry, but just any sector, 
where there's a lot of, um, I'm hesitant to use the term self-interest, but I'm going to use it, you know, where folks have been working a certain way within an industry for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's more just about what they know, what they understand, how they know to provide service. I mean, we can think of many different uh, industries, think of accounting, law, um, you know, I'm even thinking about things like, um, you know, the Actors Guild and the Writers Guild and these organizational groups that are coming together. And for a variety of reasons, there's different things going on in the economy, et cetera. But there's still this um, uncertainty around technology and how it might impact the way business is done, how people are paid. Mm-hmm. How should practitioners, especially if they're parts of like larger groups or organizations be thinking about transformational technology, how it might impact them in a productive way. Do you have thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, The, uh, I think you've hit on an interesting point. Uh, The uh, uh, two generations ago, accounting uh, was done by someone with a green shield, you know, know, sadly, almost always a man, but with a green shield thing, filling out, literal spreadsheets and people felt better that uh, well human looked at it and the numbers make sense and such but of course mistakes happen and transposition errors and all the rest of it um when uh electronic spreadsheets and eventually excel and pivot tables and things emerged in the 90s the uh, uh that wasn't the end of the accountant but that was the end of the accountant with the green shield and the uh, thing uh with the uh, paper uh, uh ledgers and what ended up happening was that they could not compete with the ones using technology. And I'm kind of seeing the same thing happening now where um, engineers or accountants or real estate professionals or lawyers using technology have a competitive advantage with uh, uh, the ones who do not. Um, uh, a good friend of mine is a, a, a lawyer, and, uh, and they've been involved in a, a bit of an experiment using AI, and they were using uh, IBM Watson. And uh, they were preparing for a case and something that uh, uh, would normally take articling students six weeks to prepare all the case law research, uh, Watson did in about seven minutes. And then you start realizing, oh, it could pull a lot of jurisprudence very quickly and help us dissect the different nuances of it. And uh, Watson's not been commercialized in the way I think IBM expected it to be. But I think it's been a good glimpse into how things could look. And then, of course, ChatGPT, right around a year ago, when it sort of became uh, available for the public, it sort of unleashed a new way of looking at different things. Um, and, and I think you raise an interesting point about the human element. You know, you look at the actors and the writers. You know, I think we can all pick off an AI-generated article now. Um, but AI will never be worse than it is right now. Tomorrow's going to be a little bit better. And the day after that's going to be a little bit better. And so I think the, the, the concern that the creative industries have is that they'll be replaced by this. And a big part of what the, those uh, groups, uh, uh, SAG and ACTRA and such, are look, working on is to ensure that there's a human element. And I'm sympathetic to that because I think that's part of the human uh, experience is that connectivity that we have. And that goes for real estate. You know, I think a big part of my job is ensuring that realtors are on these journeys with people uh, to, uh, to buy their houses. They're not buying the house, but they're like a Sherpa helping you get up that mountain and they're helping through those different elements of it. But they're going to have to use technology and realize that there's different ways to do it and that your clients will have access to a lot of the same information that, uh, that in the past was highly guarded and kept in the trunk of a car someplace. I think those types of things are starting to morph and change. And, you know, frankly, I think we've seen a long history of companies that try to resist uh, different elements, and it does not end up well, right? And so uh, I've spoken at a couple of conferences uh, this year around legacy industries, and uh, you look at uh, legacy automotive industries and how they, they uh, frankly, are probably behind on the electric car uh, journey, uh, and they've been resisting it, and you kind of wonder where they're going to end up. Are they going to be able to catch up to, frankly, Tesla's the leader in this by a substantial margin? And it's really around the charging, frankly, uh, is the secret weapon that the Tesla's un- unraveled there. But that's a big consumer product. You can kind of get your head around it. But, you know, you look at other examples like Kodak. Kodak invented the digital camera in 1976. And they were so afraid of it cannibalizing the film, the, uh, the actual physical film product business, they sort of hid it away. And uh, lo and behold, now Kodak's, uh, you know, went bankrupt in 2012 or so. 
now exists mostly to license its name and for some commercial applications for movies and things like that, and, and for pension purposes. And this is a company that was uh, created in the uh, late 19th century and was synonymous with, you know, get to have a Kodak moment. It had four of the most popular, uh, four of the five most popular cameras ever made were Kodak cameras, you know, everything from the brownie to all the rest of it, and obliterated like that. You know, and I think we have to be mindful that transformation will come, can and will come. And the ones that survive, Dar you know, people often quote Darwin and say the strongest survive. Darwin never said that. Darwin's whole thing is the ones who adapt survive. And uh, he uses the thing about the moth in London and, the, and how they survived during the early industrial age. The dark ones weren't eaten by the birds. And I think that's kind of true. And so I often draw a parallel, you know, Nintendo and uh, Kodak both started around the same time, around 1890. Uh, most people do not realize Nintendo is that old. Um, coincidentally, both are made up words and don't mean anything. But Kodaks are stuck to what they were doing and rode that way for 100 years. Nintendo started off doing playing cards and then quickly realized they didn't have a differentiating thing because anybody can make playing cards and started to reinvent themselves over and over again and uh, had uh, everything from love hotels, which are exactly what you think they are, to uh, um, uh, Uber before there was uh, Uber. And so in the 1930s, you could call and someone would show up with a private car and drive you around Tokyo and things like that. And eventually morphed into board games and other sort of home entertainment things. And then, ta-da, started with electronic gaming in the 70s. But even at that, they've been continuing to reinvent themselves. Cloud-based, mobile uh, devices, uh, uh, buying the Seattle Mariners, you know, eventually sold them. But, you know, not being afraid to reimagine themselves, which is not what you expect from a, a, an Eastern corporation. They tend to be very conservative and very stuck to it. And I think it's inspirational how they managed to reinvent themselves uh, so that they remain relevant and, uh, and continue. Because things do change. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at video rental business. It came and went in a generation. So when you're thinking yeah. about reinvention and you're thinking about thought leadership and, and innovation, I mean, mm -hmm. I think that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this from variety of levels. Um, so just using real estate as an example, you know, the, the realtor, the practitioner can mm -hmm. lean into technology. They can use AI to help them um, provide better services, better quality content. There's a lot of things that they can, they can do. When you look from an industry perspective, um, if, if, if an industry is wanting to be innovative, wanting to help its practitioners be innovative, mm -hmm. wanting to create a landscape where they can um, be seen as innovative by the consumer and the consumer actually looks to the industry as um, yeah. a, a value add <laughs> to their, yeah, 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 to their yeah. life. You know, yeah. how, how should organizations be looking at this next chapter, um, especially when they're not often tech companies, you know, that's the part that I think is, mm -hmm. is challenging. A lot of organizations and businesses require a lot of technology to provide their services and their goods, et cetera, but they're not tech companies. So like, how do they, do they compete? Do they partner? Do they, what are, and I'm thinking in particular in the context of web three blockchain and or AI, you know, mm -hmm. if there's anything that you're thinking about right now in that context, I'd love to hear yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, that's a great point. And uh, uh, I think, frankly, almost all tech companies of a certain size, or all companies, I should say, of a certain size are tech companies. So REBGV is morphing into a tech company because it's, it's the provision of the MLS and forces and all the rest of it. It's MLS is critical to this. And the, the reality is uh, most companies don't have the size and scale or expertise to ramp up leading edge products and services in the technology space. It's too expensive. Uh, the risk is too high. Uh, there's a number of different factors there. But these uh, companies and the, the real estate boards are a good example, are sitting on a lot of data. And data kind of is morphing into the new oil. And it's not just the cookies you, when you click and say accept all. That is an element of all this stuff. But it's also around how you uh, you know manage your relationships and uh, the uh, uh, with your customers and with your suppliers and all the rest of it. So I think what we're starting to see is a bit of an evolution, and there's kind of two camps. And uh, there's uh, the one camp is build a moat and keep everyone away out of your uh, fortress. 
And the other camp uh, is you build bridges uh, across the water with the uh, tech companies and say, we want to work with you. And we've got the data, you know, like the chocolate factory with the peanut butter factory. You know, let's see if we can do something together and create something special. And I kind of think that is a more successful long-term strategy to sort of start to work the leverages. Because don't forget, you know, these big tech companies have amazing technology, almost uh, endless balance sheet horsepower, um, but they don't necessarily have the relationships. They don't necessarily have the connections with the, uh, the, the individuals involved. That goes for music and songwriters and performers, but also with uh, real estate uh, realtors and, uh, and with buyers and sellers and such. Doesn't mean they can't develop them, but they don't have them right now. Uh, the realtors uh, in this instance, or the accountants in their world, or the, uh, the engineers and theirs, have these special relationships. And I think by building bridges uh, is a, a longer term and a, a better and more stable strategy to help ensure the success for the entire ecosystem. I think holding bridges or uh, build, uh, building bridges is better than trying to hold a moat. Uh, history has shown us that, that moats are eventually overcome, and the output is not good for the people inside the, uh, and behind the moat. I cannot think of one example where the moat has really worked long term. And eventually, you get ground into nothing. You know, or uh, you know, like Blockbuster. You know, they, their moat was you uh, had to go back and forth uh, and get the thing there. They were not were not open to new ways to do things, and eventually got killed, frankly. And uh, but I think building uh, uh, bridges with the different uh, stakeholders and looking at different ways of doing business is could be quite clever. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, a number of the large tech firms, certainly the the Fang Group, um, Facebook, uh, uh, Amazon, Apple, uh, Netflix, and Google, uh, uh, or, or Alphabet, if you're a non-traditionalist, mm-hmm. um, definitely were looking at different ways of how things can be uh, evolved. And uh, I was reading uh, last night about uh, uh, the struggle of retail, uh, who's not really uh, retail uh, products uh, stores who have not really come back from the pandemic. They were struggling before the pandemic was like the, the arrow to the heart. And who's beating them to death? You know, mostly Amazon. You know, and uh, people are realizing, oh, I, I don't need to go to the store. I'll come to the house. The the price is going to be cheaper. You know, all those types of things. And it's a lesson there because they could have handled things differently and, and and opened up their own Amazon store on Amazon or something like that and done something. But one of the things that I think is a, a telling issue of where someone had an opportunity to let slip away, uh, Sears was Amazon before Amazon, right? So they had catalogs and you can order things. You know, Eaton's in Canada was famous for this and there's children's books written about it and all the rest of it. Um, they had the general business model figured out ship it out from a warehouse, direct to consumer, all that type of thing. But they became so fixated on trying to protect their flagship stores in downtown Vancouver or downtown Toronto or Montreal. They lost the plot on that the the consumer was not as interested in that and wanted to cut out the intermediary. And uh, that was kind of, I think, an example of where they uh, a missed opportunity where they maybe could have built a bridge. Um, right now, it looks easy to have had an online store or Shopify it or something. But granted, in the 90s, it maybe was a, it seemed like a bridge too far. But if they were for, more forward-looking, they might have been able to pivot and save themselves in a different way. I, uh, the, uh, there is a risk that uh, the, the world may end up being dominated by a half dozen or a dozen giant companies. Um, you know, if you look at the consumption of uh, media, you know, the media companies, which were quite diverse, 100 or so, 40, 50 years ago, now is largely dominated by half a dozen. You know, you know uh, General Electric and, and uh, uh, Disney are major forces in, uh, uh, in, uh, in what we consume. And when you look at sort of the octopus map of who's in, in all these buckets, it's kind of overwhelming. You think, oh, okay, I can see why this is problematic. And the same thing's happening digitally, right? Absolutely. It's, it's November 5th as we're recording this. And I, it was just earlier this last week, I believe, Disney purchased Hulu as an example. Yeah. And... Um, that sort of a thing, I think, from an industry perspective, I think is not always on the forefront of people's minds is just the powerful um, mm-hmm. players that can enter like real estate as an example. It's it's just such it's prime. It's a prime industry for big tech to get into. Um, so very curious to see when and who 
uh, yeah. uh, who launches into this sector. I, I'm kind of convinced it's going to happen. And yeah. uh, the, uh, uh, to me, I'm new to this, and so bear with me. I've only been in this industry for a couple of years. But uh, I think there's three uh, key ways that you make money on real estate in general. Like One is the value of the property going up over time. The second part, it's not sexy, but a lot of money in it. Uh, mortgages, trillions of dollars with a steady return uh, uh, you know, year over year, decade over decade. And then the third part is really around like things like commissions and the ancillary type services. Commissions is the most obvious one. Um, and I, I, I think those are areas where big tech's going to be very focused, uh, especially the mortgage side and, uh, and on the commission side to take a look at, say, is there other ways to do these things? Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, uh, and the same goes for, you know, the big banks are looking. You know, they've got the mortgage piece. They want to hold on to that. I do mm-hmm. think the tech companies are very interested in the mortgages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think we're going to see some pivoting. You know, uh, Earlier this year, Royal Bank bought a brokerage. Um, it's not the first time a bank has bought a, a brokerage in, in Canada. It's been tried a number of times over the decades. They dabble in it and give up. They may not, may, 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 they may not be such a short-lived experiment this time mm-hmm. as uh, they're looking to diversify. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when you look at it, you know, organized real estate right now is largely a collection of smallish companies, individual mm-hmm. owner-operators, like realtors and, or small teams, or uh, even organized real estate's relatively small. Uh, real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver is the second biggest in the country, but it's still a relatively small company. You know, mm-hmm. 105 employees. The average Walmart has a, in Canada has about 400 employees. Um, that gives you a sense, like, what's, what's, what we're dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. and and the idea that uh, uh, organized real estate or the, the, the remaxes of the world can mobilize something of the horsepower to take on an Amazon or uh, an Alphabet, uh, it's daunting. Like Those are deep, deep pockets. Yeah. You know? and, and I think and there's got to be smart ways to look at it. it. It also highlights some of the challenges that are inherent, I think, generally speaking, with any industry that has professional organizations is just the... Um, fractional mm-hmm. sort of decision-making um, imp- uh, structure framework. Yeah. It yeah, makes yeah. it difficult for industry to move quickly when you have so many pieces uh, to the decision-making puzzle um, and a lot of human element related to that and folks who are very, um, you know, used to the status quo, yeah, yeah, uh, so to yeah. speak. And I should bring that up. So, you know, Jeff, you were brought in as CEO of this organization and, um, you know, I was on the board at the time and it was a, a strong priority to make sure we were looking outside of the industry, which actually was pushing against the norm in a big way. A, a lot of, um, you know, organizations in, in this industry are, are very much used to seeing a lot of the same leadership kind of migrate maybe from one area to the other, but they've been around a long time yeah. and maybe you can speak to that um just at a higher level what what you think um the relevance is of say getting an outsider's perspective um especially when looking at innovation and disruption um and and you know future scenario planning for an organization um and sorry I'm, this is a bit of a run-on question but i'm also okay. thinking about organizations where you know, maybe they're not necessarily looking for a leadership change, but they know they have blind spots. Mm. You know, like what what should they be thinking about? Okay, all right. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, sorry um, about that. So that's my that's, that's okay. my uh, mo. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's uh, let's see how good I am. So on on your first part uh, around uh, organized uh, real estate or arguably disorganized at times real estate, um, it is hard to make decisions because there's so many different factors involved. And uh, there's a lot of real estate boards and uh, a large number of them. Uh, there's uh, eight in British Columbia plus the provincial association. There's 75 or so across the country, um, all disparate, all with their own unique views of things. Uh, so it's hard to come to consensus and move with uh, what I call the speed of business. You know, and mm-hmm. I think there's a, a lot, there's a, a, a strong pull to be able to try to move at that type of speed. Like there's a speed of sound, speed of light. I think there's a speed of business has to move at. And companies that are more cohesive and or maybe uh, even just one entity, for instance, they can move much faster. They can say, we're going to do this, and here's what we're doing, and organize their resources. And I think the disparate nature and the fractionalized nature of real estate makes that harder. 
you know, and makes it uh, more difficult to, to kind of deal with. Now, on the question around uh, the outsider's uh, sort of point of view, um, uh, I love it here, and I'm thoroughly enjoying the job. But I am very pleased that uh, the board of uh, RevGV had the foresight to go outside. It wasn't that there's not great people inside the industry. There are. There's a number of them. Uh, the vast majority are amazing. But I think when you come from the outside, you have a slightly different perspective. You're less married to the uh, being a guardian of the faith and say, this is the way we've always done it. I have to defend it. Uh, that you can ask more sort of the question, the, the challenging questions around, you know, why do we cut off the ends of the roast beef type of thing? And I think those are the, uh, uh, the organized real estates had a long history of those types of things. Um, there's not much in the way of outsiders inside organized real estate because of the nature of the business and, uh, and who it attracts. Uh, a number of the executive officers and leadership is are either realtors or former realtors or grew up within the system. But uh, there's a handful I can think of off the top of my head that came from the outside, including myself. I think that uh, uh, the extra perspective that outsiders bring to industries can be refreshing. It can be scary uh, at times. But I think if it's done with uh, elegance and uh, with a, a direct and transparent way, uh, people uh, people will come along and they'll, they'll sort of see uh, the, the focus on how to evolve these things. And this goes for all industries. You know, I. When you take a look at some of the most successful uh, folks in the banking industry, of course, there's a lot of folks on the, that grew up on the inside and, and evolved it. But some of the greatest transformational stuff come from outsiders saying, well, why do we do it this way? Or how does this work? Or is there a better way to think of these types of things? Now, not all of them worked out great, right? Some of them have uh, went uh, went poorly. But I think if you want to adapt and start to morph and, and build yourself towards success, you have to have a number of different perspectives. And that includes industry background, but also includes the DEI perspectives. You know, uh, most industries are heavily populated uh, with uh, middle-aged white guys uh, and, uh, and and increasingly middle-aged white women, right? And uh, that's a start, but a lot more has got to be done to help bring different perspectives on, on how to do things differently. I think all these things are interwoven, right? And I think companies that, that figure this out fastest uh, will be the ones that will be the most successful in how they deal with it. It's uh, um, uh, otherwise, uh, someone else will figure it out, and uh, and there'll be the slow but inevitable erosion of whatever business you're in. You know, um, yeah. You look what's happened. You know, this podcast here. You look what's happened to traditional terrestrial radio. You know, uh, uh, it was uh, AM was all it. And then FM came and had better quality and played more eclectic music. So AM moved into talk radio and talk radio got obliterated by podcasts. And, you know, here we are on a Sunday morning talking about industries, right? Uh, and, 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 and able to do deep form, deep uh, discussion interviews, which AM radio wasn't really built for. And, you know, uh, some cars, you can't even get AM radio in anymore. And those types of things are, we st- those are, you know, canaries in the coal mine. Right, we should be paying attention to things like that, where things start to shift and start to look different on how uh, the, these things happen. Your sort of final point in around the the uh, the, the nature of the business and uh, and uh, and how it works, like with uh, outsiders. I did notice early on there was a lot of gatekeeping and a lot of well, you're not from here, you know? and I came from another city and a, another industry, which is probably a double thing, but the. Um, uh, uh, but the real estate that ha- does have a lot of gatekeeping to it. And I think part of it comes back to these are my leads, this is my project, this is my initiative, or these are my sellers or my listing. And I think there's a bit of a mindset around the sort of piece of it. And uh, I think fundamentally a lot of folks are hunters or gatherers in, in their mindset and how they do business. And uh, that part was kind of uh, surprising to me when I arrived was uh, this uh, uh, This is our backyard, you stay out of it. Whereas collectively, we could do a lot more together. And uh, I've been uh, quite, I've put a lot of effort in the last couple of years to build bridges with the different stakeholders, including our members, of course, but also other real estate boards, other provincial associations and the national association uh, for my own growth and for my own education and knowledge, but also for the betterment of RevGV. And uh, uh, we're starting to see some payoff of that. And uh, how to connect these things. Still a long ways to go, and there's, you know, there's still some big threats on the horizon. The the storm clouds are there, and they're not just technology coming to disrupt us. You know, economic concerns, you know, social unrest concerns, 
all these types of things. You know, there's a seismic shift happening in uh, North American culture as we speak. You know, and uh, and then you layer in, we're going to proceed over the next 15 years, maybe a little bit shorter. Next 15 years, at, at probably at most, we're going to see the largest transfer of wealth in human history. You know, people selling businesses, uh, uh, grandparents selling the house, uh, people passing on, things like that. It's going to be the, we're talking the magnitude of trillions of dollars is going to transfer to a whole other generation. And that's going to have a seismic shift on how things get done. Uh, it wasn't, a, it's not as though this didn't happen in the past, but not to this scale. You know, there's about 1.2 million businesses in Canada and about 600,000 of them are, are either led or owned by people in their 60s. And they're not going to be doing this when, in the 2040s. They're going to either sell off or sell to a competitor or wind up or do something. Then all those things will have a big shift with an, and with a bit of an aging demographic. Um, uh, the immigration uh, policies of the federal government are, are starting to slow that uh, impact. Um, I, uh, there's a lot of challenges that come with that. But to show how all these things are connected, you know, real estate's under pressure as it is anyways. It's a big part of the B.C. economy. Canada normally gets around 450,000 uh, uh, new immigrants every year. About 300,000 go to the greater Toronto area. About 100,000 go to the lower mainland in BC. And the other 50,000 are spread around. They've got to live someplace. They don't, they aren't buying $6 million mansions, but there's a ripple effect where they put pressure on and that puts pressure on affordability. That puts pressure on employers who don't have economic model to be able to pay their employees enough. That puts pressure on real estate in general and people will look and they'll blame the realtors or they'll blame uh, uh, government fiscal policy on these types of things. These things are all interrelated and complex, but we have to look at ways to transform and start to morph and deal with these different things individually with an idea towards a longer goal of what type of society we want to have in Canada. That does bring up an interesting question around leadership and decision-making and per what I'm really thinking about is environmental scanning. And, mm. you know, clearly from your perspective, there's a lot of different things going on. And as we mentioned, you know, you're thinking more from a technology perspective, but not a, you know, not a defined technology company. Yeah, yeah. And so as a leader, how do you think folks ought to perform environmental scans like you know this this show is called from the blockchain we i obviously have a serious interest in blockchain and web3 technology and so and, and some of the um criticisms i think that someone like myself can face is like oh you're you know you're you're maxi for this technology and you're looking for problems to solve but you're really just trying to find ways to use this tech and and so what i'm wondering is as different things are emerging Mm -hmm. how how do you filter through the noise or how do you look at, you know, what are the things uh, we should be paying attention to? Where are the areas where we should take a deeper interest and learn more, right? And, and figure out what the opportunities or risks mm. might be. Like, how do you, how do you go about doing that? How, and, and what would you recommend to others? Okay. All right. No, that's good. Uh, the, uh, Okay, so there's a couple elements in there. Um, the uh, uh, um, on the blockchain piece, uh, uh, um, uh, I'm a, uh, a keen student of it. Uh, I'm not an engineer. I'm a well-meaning amateur. Um, uh, I do think blockchain will have a role, not just in real estate, but in uh, economics and neo banking and open banking and different things like that. Um, fundamentally, um, uh, this is maybe the uh, marketer in me. I think. Blockchain needs uh, a rebranding, mm. and uh, the uh, you know you think back in the past, third-party storage on uh, on uh, Microsoft or on uh, um, uh, IBM servers existed since the 70s. Sorry, well, IBM since the 70s, Microsoft since the 90s. It wasn't until the phrase uh, cloud storage came into vogue, largely driven by Fortune magazine uh, back in the 90s, where people said, "Well, it's on the cloud, that's fine." It's still sitting on an Amazon or Microsoft server. But it sort of repurposed it a bit. And I think with blockchain, blockchain itself has had more pilots than British Airways. And I think that part of the challenge has been that people are trying to find ways to use it. And it, it's not it's not super fast yet. It still takes longer to do a transaction than you would think. And it's very energy uh, um, uh, demanding. 
it's got a, it takes a lot of energy to, uh, uh, to calculate the, uh, the different elements to execute a transaction. There's been a lot of progress made in the last six to nine months on that front, but I think a lot more has got to happen. Uh, the, uh, uh, but I do think if it was a bit of a rebrand and sort of move towards like a verified ledger idea. And the, the example I often use is, you know, like a lot of people, you know, when they research something, they look at, uh, they'll go to Wikipedia. And uh, Wikipedia is fraught with all kinds of problems. But if there was some sort of system where, you said, where there was a blue check mark, you knew everything on that page. Everything about Ashley Smith on that page was right. It was kind of signed off by her and by the who knows who. Um, you would feel much more comfortable using it or quoting it in an article or in research and such. And I kind of think if blockchain was sort of positioned as, oh, I want to do this real estate deal or I want to do this mergers and acquisition activity. And everything in here has got a blue check mark. It's all fine. It's a, and I'm looking inside this digital deal room to buy this NFT or this classic car or a property, whatever it is. I think that would go a long ways towards helping with adoption, adoption of blockchain as part of this sort of open, transparent way of us doing these things. We have to overcome the energy thing because I do think that's going to be an, a major issue for wide-scale adoption. Now, to the second part of your question, how do companies prepare for it? I'm a, I'm a big supporter of uh, Clayton Christensen and the sort of the innovator's dilemma. And one of the, thing, the things I've done over and over again with uh, good success is around the idea of around innovation, uh, innovator catalyst uh, training and how people try to think outside the box. But really more fundamentally, develop, uh, dividing teams into red and blue teams and say, okay, if you're going to disrupt us, how would you do it? Uh, internal staff folks, how would you do it? What would you do? You know, and think outside the box, you know, and, uh, and then have them present to each other what their, what their thinking is. And sometimes you get out of the box ideas, all the rest of it. Um, I, I have found that to be a very useful thought exercise. And it tells you a lot about how different pieces of, uh, of your team will work and how they, uh, how strategic they are or how strategic they're not. And there are different views of the world and maybe weaknesses the company has that's either innate, just there. Or uh, that uh, weaknesses that are there that I haven't been really sort of sourced out. And uh, the, then on a more individual level, uh, for a number of years, uh, and I think you may remember this, Ashley, for a number of years, I've always sort of asked the question, if you had a magic wand with unlimited resources, what would you change about your current situation or your business? Um, I, I was interviewing uh, a number of years ago uh, with a, a, a U.S. broadcaster for a job. And I asked him this question. He didn't have an answer. He just sort of froze, to be honest. He was really nice, and they ended up offering me the job. I didn't take it. But he was, uh, uh, but he kind of froze and sort of gave a, uh, I just wish our people worked harder and we made more money type of answer. And, uh, uh, and this was 2012 or so. And then when, uh, uh, when, I, when I was leaving the, the room, he said, oh, he said, what would you answer if you asked that question to me? I said, oh, I'd get into streaming in a big way. I said, I think that's, if I had a magic wand, resources weren't a problem, I would lean in on that super fast. He goes, oh, okay. Well, I couldn't help but notice uh, that they are into streaming in a big way. It took them a while, but they have an incredibly valuable catalog that they could monetize. But that was the first time I'd done it with sort of an outside person. I'd ask that question to people in interviews, and like, but there were people I was interviewing and asking them about their business, not someone I was interviewing. And it gave me good insight into how they thought, saw the world. They just saw how do we keep going? What we got going? That's good. And so I use that a lot now. And it's, uh, um, it's interesting on, on how people react to it. This includes realtors and, uh, and brokerages, but also law firms and banks and regulators and all the rest of it. It's, it, it gives a good insight. I'll have to come up with a more clever way to articulate it so it doesn't become boring. But, but, but I do find that's a useful thing, and that's something I would encourage the audience to do with their teams and with the people they work with. What about the inverse? Um, what if you're you're an employee, um, mm -hmm. perhaps not like a, a senior executive, but you're an employee, or maybe even a director of a board, maybe, mm. and, and you have you know been spending time learning about something that you think is like the greatest idea. Right, <laughs> like, right, okay. You yeah, see yeah. some innovation, you're like, man, this would rock in our in our company or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, how would you suggest that person further unpack that and and bring it to the top to be properly explored? Yeah, the um, uh, uh, this happens frequently, 
and uh, and uh, there's a couple of things. We're going the assumption that the uh, the company has an open culture that encourages discussion and dialogue, which RevGV does, um, but not all companies do. But for the uh, the more uh, junior person or the person that's say a board member or uh, a customer even that's on the outside, um, my uh, uh, my recommendation would be to work with your mentor group. Um, I think everyone should have kind of a group of mentors and proteges that you're working with. Frankly, by the way, I think it helps sharpen ideas and and battle test uh, concepts. But for this hypothetical, I would uh, recommend the person to test drive it with the, the sort of the people they respect inside or outside the company and say, "I've wondered about this," or uh, and uh, and you know, can you help me refine it? Because I'm not, I'm missing something. I think because why aren't we doing this X, Y, or Z? Um, and then eventually um, uh, keep refining it until you get an, uh, you feel comfortable with it. And then work to get an audience with some senior people who can help marshal those resources that you need. Um, senior executives are people, right? And uh, and they, they're just uh, they're they're as flawed as the rest of us. Um, but at the end of the day, they want their companies to do well. And if you have an idea or concept, uh, even if you're a lowly board member. Um, and you, you do it, you know, uh, present it and, and work to battle test it. And, but don't have a sense, uh, you know, you own it, but don't have a sense of ownership where you mm -hmm. have to uh, have it my way or this is the way I always thought about it. You know, if you feel that strongly about it, then start your own business and, and compete. But, but generally, most of them are not that. They're, they're usually process-oriented things uh, or they're new lines of business things. And uh, I would recommend uh, testing it for a few times to sort of help refine it. And then work to get an audience with the senior people. Mm -hmm. And um, and then and I'm speaking largely uh, uh, to my audience now. If you're a, a member of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver or, or an employee here, um, feel free to reach out to me 24/7, and uh, I'll be happy to talk to you about any and all of your ideas. Uh, I think uh, together we can do amazing things. Uh, I can't do this in isolation. And uh, great ideas come from everywhere. Well, I think you're so, doing amazing. And oh, I love, oh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I really appreciate your perspective, but I also appreciate your focus on on culture and all of that, because I think um, when you're talking about innovation, that's such an important piece. For uh, sure. For yeah. sure. You, you know where it gets stimulated? Uh, uh, open cultures are incredibly innovative. And mm -hmm. the ones that are not open, very hierarchical, that type of thing, they're not innovative at all. And and uh, they end up having everything from turnover to they get stale, to they can't compete, they can't move quickly enough. You know, it's it's unbelievable, right? Because at the end of the day, we're all people, and we're trying to do something. And uh, and so culture's you know super critical. We're we're in the process of uh, releasing the new strat plan, strategic plan for uh, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. We have three main uh, elements: uh, operational excellence, product innovation, and industry leadership. And woven through all those is a cultural element about how we interact with the members and with the other stakeholders and, of course, internally. And I think uh, um, if we're authentically transparent, there's, uh, uh, there's not much we cannot do. We do have to wrap up pretty quick here. Before we do, I want to ask you one kind of, not rapid fire, but you know, we okay. don't have to dive super deep. But I do want to think a little bit about your previous experience in the music mm. industry and um, whether or not you have any thoughts on the Web3 applications of music. like that, The creator side has certainly seen um, Web3 touch that space more like directly mm -hmm. over the last few years. And I, I do think, from my perspective, music is likely the one that will probably see, you know, over the next few years, really do something. Um, I'd love to know if you have any either predictions or just thoughts on on that sector and, and the technology. Yeah, um, I, I think there's two big elements, and I'll keep it short, uh, but I think there's two big elements. The, the tracking of the, the ownership of the various uh, pieces of music, uh, works or compositions or recordings, is uh, incredibly complicated. And, uh, you know, for instance, the highest earning song in Canada in 2021 had uh, 50 participants. So that's because of the collaboration and uh, everybody had their own publisher and samples with a whole bunch of other writers and all those types of things. That's a lot of folks to keep track of, especially when you're talking under a fraction of a cent that's being paid for because it's on a YouTube clip. So I think Web 3.0 is going to be the beginning of a way to sort that out. 
Um, some companies, including uh, uh, you know, SOCAN and uh, and CZAC, have done a lot of work to prepare for those types of things. Uh, but I think that's going to be the next big frontier in the next couple of years. I think the other part, kind of interwoven with this, is uh, the role of AI. And so AI, uh, you know, when people think about AI with music, uh, you know, the generation of music is uh, obviously an area uh, where a lot of people draw their mind towards. Uh, the uh, and some of the AI music actually is better than you would think it is. And we're mm -hmm. still in the early days, so it's kind of alarming. But that will continue to evolve, and I still think there'll be a human element, and uh, and people will still enjoy the the T Swift concert and all those types of you know big shared experience moments. You know, the, uh, that's one thing COVID taught us. And, you know, the shared experiences are, are are powerful things. But the other part of AI will help with the processing elements of the uh, the you know, Web 3.0 piece. You know, uh, the uh, the huge processing power of AI is really the big difference maker. Now it's cool they can make a new version of Hey Jude or something like that, but it's also extra cool that they can take that song with 50 participants and track it and realize that it was played on a YouTube that was consumed in Cairo, but also played uh, done in a con uh, in a concert in Vancouver and also on a TV show in Tokyo and be able to match all that stuff back together. Uh, that's done through a very rudimentary system right now. I think that's going to be a major shift, and that'll streamline the system. The speed of money going through the system would be better. Fewer people touching it, more money in the hands of the creators. Uh, uh, I think we're going to see a seismic shift uh, over the, the remaining parts of this decade in, uh, in music. Cool. Well, looking forward to seeing that side of it all. Jeff, I really appreciate your time. I think we could keep going. <laughs> like, there's a lot I'd love to unpack. And I think we might have to do a, a second episode at some point. Um, but before we leave, uh, can you tell our audience where they can find you and anything you're working on? I know you mentioned mm. your article. I'll link that in the show notes. But okay, anywhere yeah. else people should find and follow Jeff King? Um, uh, you know what? Uh, you can find me on uh, X at uh, Jeff King 17 and mm -hmm. um, uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm at the, the Max LinkedIn uh, connections, but feel free to follow me and uh, I'll get rid of people so I can have you connections if, uh, if need be. But, but, cool. uh, but no, that sounds good. I, I think I'm easy to find and, uh, and I'm uh, looking forward to hearing from folks. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. Everybody listening, thank you for tuning in today. Until next week, have a good one. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of From the Blockchain. I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any ideas about future episodes, including themes or potential guests, please check for a link in the show notes. Happy to hear from you. Also, if you're interested in being a potential sponsor for From the Blockchain, I'd love to hear from you as well. Check for a special link just for you in the show notes. All right, everybody. Again, thanks for being here. Love the show. Love being with you. Please remember to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Until next week, have a great one.